Hi, this is Josh Tyson with UX Magazine. Last week I had the chance to chat with Alberta Saranzo. She's an Italian-born information architect. Uh, she's done work for the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Justice and Human Rights, and even though she lives in London now, no longer an Angelino, she still serves on the board of the Los Angeles User Experience Meetup. She's also going to be presenting at Giant, June 14th through 17th in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, that's the, uh, the conference for people who do rad work. She likes mixtapes, I like mixtapes, we talk about that. We also touch on the rather somber notion of what happens to your digital assets when you leave this mortal coil. Uh, a couple of notes, too, before we begin. Uh, I, uh, for some reason, call the Apple Watch iWatch, but actually I, I think that reason is that every other product of theirs is i this, i that, so I'm probably not the only one. I also uh, refer to data as data, which is interesting, because I think I've always called it data in the past, but when I looked it up later, data is supposedly the American pronunciation, data, the English. So maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. You can uh, tap me at, uh, well, just hit us at at UXMag on Twitter. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you think of this interview. Uh, and thanks. Let's go. The first thing I wanted to tell you or talk to you about was uh, as I was looking over, the, over all the speakers at Giant, uh, you caught my eye because... You, you were very familiar. I knew you from, from my Hootsuite feed, from constantly being on Hootsuite all day looking. And uh, we're, we're fortunate to have, you know, a lot of listener or a lot of readers um, retweeting a lot of our articles. But I always noticed that you would dig in a little bit and tweet something, you know, very insightful about each article. So, so I always liked that. And then your picture, it looked like, I think you had big aviator shades on in the picture at the time. And, and it I saw the word Los Angeles, and so it seemed like maybe you were, I don't know, I was picturing you kind of in Topanga Canyon or something, doing, doing UX work from someplace kind of exotic. Maybe llamas were nearby. So that's pure projection and hyperbole, uh, but there were those two things. Uh, and then as I was reading your bio, too, I saw that you uh, are a fan of making mixtapes, which is something I spent way too much time doing growing up. <laughs> Did you see my mixtape experiment? I did. So it was like a list of, if I recall, it was a list of YouTube links, right? No, it's um, it's uh, it's it's a list. It manifested itself in a list of YouTube links. But um, I was thinking about when I was a teenager, and my mom was a high school teacher, and her students used to make me tapes, cassettes, real cassettes. And I still remember my first cassette was uh, on one side. Breakfast in America, and on the other side was Tunnel of Love, of Dire Straits. And, um, you know, growing up in Italy, of course, English isn't my first language, so that's, I worn those tapes out trying to learn English and understand what they were saying. And I was talking to a friend about mixtapes, uh, and it occurred to me that I could run a little experiment. So I put a form that's still active on my blog, um, asking people to send me their songs so I could make a mixtape that then manifested in a YouTube collection of links. Perfect. Yeah, it's like the art of a mixtape, though, is, is sadly gone by the wayside a little bit. It was kind of an exercise in constraint, too, right? Because you had 45 minutes per side. You had the, the list of songs that you thought you wanted to use. And then you had to kind of find a way to put them all together. Um, so it's kind of nice. Like it's, you're, it, it's related to experience design a little bit, I think too, especially if you're like what I was always trying to do. There was one girl in high school who was the unfortunate victim of many mixtapes, 
But I was always trying to create like a very specific experience. Like I wanted there to be an arc to the experience of listening to this tape. And I, and I was wanting her to feel certain ways as I was moving through each song. So, so it was kind of, uh, you know, I, I feel like there was definitely, there were experience design considerations even back before anyone was talking about experience design. There we were at our... Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because um, uh, definitely there is, a, there is a connection with experience design. And I'm sure that this girl uh, experienced certain things, but not necessarily the things that you, are experience, you were experiencing when you were making the tape. So you were trying to evoke certain emotions and make her see the connection between the music and how you felt and trying to influence how she she felt. And one of the things that I often talk about is the fact that we cannot really design experiences because they're subjective in nature and so we filter them through our own lens and the context that we're in at that moment. And so at most we can hope to design for outcomes in in that specific case of the mixtape would be that the girl would say yes when you asked her to go for ice cream or something <laughs> like that. Well, I think, unfortunately, the ultimate outcome was that uh, my, my piece de resistance, my, the most impressive mixtape I made for her, she got a new car. I wanted her to have a mixtape. I spray painted it gold, thinking it would look really cool. And it completely, <laughs> uh, completely jammed up her stereo in her new car. So, Whoops. So, mission not quite accomplished, but... But she, a she good did. Story. The, yeah, the outcome was that she never forgot that gold tape. So, so maybe not a total loss. But yeah, that's true. That's true. You can you can only design for outcomes, and and I think that's something that uh, is really hard for people to wrap their heads around, and especially experienced designers. Is that, uh, and it has to do also with kind of being able to detach yourself from a from a project, right? And and trying to see emotion and things like that as a two way street, where it's not just what you're feeling. It's it's what the what they might be feeling and how opening yourself up a bit can can maybe let you hopefully experience some of that. Exactly, which is why in the end we we test and we try and validate our intuition as to what uh, an outcome or the experience of someone else may be, just to understand exactly how what we've thought out. Um, pans out in the real world, which is the ultimate detachment. You know, sitting there across from the mirror and seeing people tear apart our work. Mm-hmm. Well, especially when it's work that's, uh, there's so many people personally invested in it. Um, and, and there's so many battles fought behind the scenes before, you know, the app arrives and then someone hopefully uses it or maybe they discard it. Yeah, high stakes. And yeah, so many, so many variables. Yes, I was having a conversation earlier today with uh, people who worked on a really large uh, redesign project, something that took about three years to complete and that was completely torn apart once it was rolled out. Um, And by torn apart, I don't mean users on Twitter uh, complained. It means that the press in... You know, all, all the all the big ones tore the whole thing apart, and some of the and some pieces were very sensational. Some were a little more objective, but ultimately, um, there were a lot of inferences as to how testing more testing was needed, how they didn't really validate um, their design and their thinking. 
And uh, by so I was discussing this whole thing with the, some of the designers behind uh, be, behind this piece of work, and my only question to them was, how did the team that actually put in nights, skipped weekends, worked on Christmas because there was a deadline, felt about uh, the the critique, which is clearly um, unjustified, because it you know whoever wrote these pieces really didn't have all the information, and. Um, this happened last year. They were telling me that they're still dealing with the aftermath, the emotional aftermath mm. of some of those um, articles because the team completely went flat because they put so much of themselves into that piece of work. And I mean, it's not bad, it, but hindsight is always twenty twenty, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, do you think Do you think it's necessary to draw a line? Are you wary about how much of yourself you're going to pour into a project, or do you think designers need to have their antenna a little more sensitive to uh, to how they might be impacted if things don't go their way? I think it's really hard to draw a line when you're invested. If you're, if you're a designer, there's a lot of you in anything you make. Uh, and where rationally you know that things may not go as you planned them, where rationally you think you know that you cannot design for yourself, ultimately you end up putting a lot of you. So um, I don't know that's possible not to put 100% of yourself into a piece of work. At least I don't know how to do it. Yeah, I'm not so good at it either. <laughs> Which uh, can be kind of a liability sometimes, I guess. Uh, but yeah, and I wonder too, um, you know, in situations where you hear about things like that happening, uh, I feel like a lot of times some, you know, design teams can get kind of trapped in a bubble um, where, where they're seeing everything uh, that they're doing, um, but maybe not always, you know, knowing exactly how to express their vision uh, outward to stakeholders and other people. And I think we're, we're at least starting to see more, more interest in kind of uh, UX education, especially that uh, really gives people a set, like kind of more of the business side of it, that how to appreciate the business concerns and how to really you know, navigate both, both uh, aspects of a project so that you can still bring your design game and be invested there, but also defend your decisions and, you know, demonstrate the things that you're trying to do to people who aren't, you know, right there with you designing. Yeah, that's, that's uh, an interesting thought. I mean, uh, I know designers that are extremely good at the business thing. They're extremely good at explaining the rationale behind decisions. Designers that wing it, designers that don't really care. Ultimately, um, data is your friend. Uh, if you can justify your design decision based on uh, distributed knowledge, if you will, and validation with users, uh, there's very little that you cannot prove. Um, you, can, you can disprove bad design, you can validate good design, you can, you can convince people. Unfortunately, I find that there's a lot of people that sell design to this day based on uh, old theories, based on I know better, based on I can guess it because I've been doing this for a long time, and that's the real um, that's the real challenge with um, for designers that uh, do do good design that sell good design at higher costs because there is an entire process that goes beyond sketching something on paper or putting some pixels on a screen. Mm -hmm. 
Well, so yeah, and that's another thing I guess about experience design is that there's that there's so many elements to it. Um, it's not just there. Are, there are people who are very involved in it who don't really do design work at all. So it's it's interesting in that, or it's unique somewhat in that aspect as well. Uh, and and you mentioned uh, big big data or data being your friend, uh, and and big data is certainly something that seems to be on everyone's mind. We're we're getting a lot of article pitches about it for sure. Uh, and being an, an information architect, you know, you're having to sort through all this stuff. Do you, what do you do with all this data? There's, there's just, it's just piling up and piling up and piling up. Do you see it as a, as an amazing opportunity or do you see it as something that needs maybe a little more filtering or? Uh, there is, um, and sometimes it's justified and sometimes it completely isn't. I mean, I, I think there is something to be said for large numbers. They're intimidating they create volume, they, um, they can be manipulated in any which way. Uh, having worked on huge data project, um, couple, until a couple of years ago, I was on loan at the Center for Disease Control, and I was working um, with uh, databases that had billions of data points. Um, gave me the real measure of what uh, data means, especially to people that do not work with data. Uh, it's all about creating meaning. The numbers by themselves don't really mean that much. It's only when you can use them to create relationship or to highlight relationship, better said, to demonstrate uh, cause and consequence, so, um, causation and correlation that you really have something. If not, you're just accumulating um, zeros and ones for, so you can say that you're using big, da big data uh, on your project. Yeah, and I, th I think that's where a lot of the real magic happens. And I think people that are able to, like you said, like find those uh, connections in the data and, and then weave a story out of that um, are probably the people who are going to really be able to succeed as the data continues to pile up. And then again, you know, data can be used for evil as well. Sure can. <laughs> as, we, as we well know. Uh, there have been re some really interesting experiments when it comes to um, data being used for marketing. Uh, you know, from the woman who got pregnant and all of a sudden dropped off from any possible uh, electronic channel. I mean, she purchased everything that pertained to her pregnancy using cash. She forbade anybody in her circle of acquaintances um, from mentioning anything about pregnancy on any social media or via email. And she managed to fly under the radar of marketers because they didn't have any data points that correlated her to pregnancy until her aunt uh, said something in a private Facebook message, and then the barrage bega began. It, it, it's really, it, it feels a bit esoteric and a bit magical, but it's crazy the things that we can do when we have just a few data points about someone. Yeah, that's fascinating too, because I, I feel like as, a, as someone who's, who uses social media and things, you, the ads... Um, you kind of stop paying attention to them. You know, I can remember the first time I saw like an AdSense ad or something that was calling up something that I'd looked at the day before and being, you know, a little creeped out by it. But now it's just white noise. Uh, so that's that's startling to think that you could just unplug yourself that much and then and then one little social media post can unleash a torrent of marketing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and at the same time, if we think about users 
you know, you and I are savvy media users. So we know that there is a relationship between the things we do online and the ads we say and the ads we see. Uh, but if you think about people who are less tech savvy, like my parents, for instance, um, I still occasionally get the call from my mom saying, oh my God, Facebook show me an ad for something you and I talked about in an email. How do they know? Um, it's, you know, for them it's bewildering. They just have a really hard time understanding how that whole thing works and how to uh, respond and protect themselves from um, that invasion. Absolutely. Well, then they're not, yeah, like you said, they're not as accustomed to the technology and it probably does seem maybe sometimes uh, kind of cool and interesting and, and sweet in a way, like that it's almost like someone's remembering something about you. But And I suppose that's probably kind of the intended outcome for a lot of the marketing. But uh, yeah, it's weird too to think that it's just strange to me how people, how comfortable people are with, with being data machines. They don't, they don't really give it a second thought. They're happy to spend all day just uh, pouring data into the machine. Yes. It's, um, you know, I, I, I was having conversations about this just recently. Uh, it's all, I think, in the perception of value. I use, you know, I try to be conscious of what I post for the most part and, you know, limit myself to the things that I'm comfortable to a point being public or potentially being seen. Uh, at the same time, I use Gmail as my primary email provider, which means that Google knows absolutely everything there is to know about me. They knew about this interview, this conversation we're having, well before it's going to be published. Uh, yet, the you know, I perceive the value I get from using Google's products higher than the value of my data, or I wouldn't use it. I have my own domain, I have my own email, so I could potentially use that. But that would mean that a whole series of services that, um, that I use, like Hangouts or Calendar, etc., etc., would require steps that are probably less um, too expensive to perform in a different way. And so I gladly give Google all of my data. Well, yeah, I mean, they give you a lot of uh, convenience and productivity in exchange for all your secrets. <laughs> yes, <laughs> all the tracking information on the billion books I buy and, you know, and all the flights I book. But yes, it's... Uh, so it's a value exchange. It's a business transaction. I give them some information about me that they can resell, uh, and they give me convenience. They give me ease of use. They give me portability to a point. Um, but at the same time, there are things that I'm not willing to give um, Google or Facebook or Twitter, and that's... Um, for instance, using them as logons on those services that offer you the possibility of logging in using social media. That's a thing that I refuse to do. So there is here in England a, um, actually it's, at this point it's beyond London, but there is this app um, called CityMapper and it's phenomenal. It's a transit app and uh, it's a combination of Maps, so it gives you a walking direction, but it also gives you a transit direction, arrival times, etc., etc., etc. And for the longest time, they have a web version and they have a mobile version. For the longest time, 
they offered account synchronization only using Facebook and Google Plus and I adamantly refused um, to synchronize my data so I would have I you know I'd be looking for something on my computer and then I'd have to retype the same thing in my phone because I didn't want to give out my credentials to something else um, it's a little bit of a pain but in that case for me the value wasn't high enough to take the chance of having someone access my data elsewhere well it's funny that you pointed out uh, I, I don't think I'd really thought about it a lot in context that that Google does probably have, well, they definitely do have all my emails. They've seen them all. And, and, uh, and yet I'm a little bit, uh, leery of Facebook. I don't use Facebook at all. I mean, I, I have a, a kind of a fake account, like with a fake name that I use to do administrative stuff for the magazine. And I feel like it drives Facebook crazy a little bit that I don't, that my fake name has no friends and like <laughs> doesn't interact with anybody. I feel like they're always trying to pressure me into giving something up. Like, hey, don't you want to tell us where you went to school? Hey. So so it's almost become a weird, yeah, like a weird point of pride. Like I kind of like that I'm teasing Facebook and being a, a really bad user. Yes. Well, I was just reading something on Facebook today. There is a, a friend of mine who's well known in the UX community who uh, has a very real presence on Facebook, except she does not use her real name. And she was commenting to the fact that she keeps getting these emails from Facebook that they're going to shut down her account because clearly her name is not a real name. So <laughs> you may be out of luck soon. You, you mentioned that uh, on your website, on your about page, that, that you very early on were, were interested in how information was organized. Uh, and I think you mentioned, too, that you were part of a study with early computers, like some sort of ergonomic study. Yes, that really, really dates me. Uh, my uh, father was actually um, an executive in, a, um, in Olivetti Computers, which uh, was IBM's competitor in Europe. Uh, right now, they pretty much only do printers for banks. So if you go into a bank in the States, you'll find Olivetti printers. But at the time, they were a technology giant. And... Um, this was the time when personal computers started appearing on the market. So we're talking the 70s, pretty much. And um, they were testing interfaces. I mean, it was still those lovely, you know, floppy disks, uh, really floppy, the five and a quarter inch. You could bend them with two hands. And they had these monstrous machines that were as big as a piano that were exclusively for typing and storing um, text. They had uh, an LED uh, display, much like you could see in, um, much like a news ticker. And they used um, the children of the, the managers and the executives and employees to test these interfaces to see if they were easy enough to use. And I suppose, um, I suppose um, that's because Olivetti always made a huge investment in design. They were the first ones to talk about ergonomics. Uh, they were the first one to employ industrial designers to design their products. So there are actually some pieces of hardware uh, that are, you can find at MoMA in New York. Like there is this calculator that was shaped like a pack of cookies, if you will, kind of flat 
it was covered in orange silicone. It's a beautiful piece of design, but so they invested a lot. And as part of that investment, they did a lot of testing with us. We were lucky enough to have computers where nobody else had computers. but it was really cool, and I and I suppose that that gave me an appreciation for what um, it means to think about the people that are using the things you make, whether they're digital or physical, as opposed to just cranking out functionality and features. Well, and what did your dad do there? Oh, he was um, he was heading up uh, public relations wow. and external affairs. Oh, cool! And so you got to just he brought you in, and you got to play with yeah. <laughs> these emerging computers. Yeah. That's really cool. We had this routine on weekends where um, on Saturdays we'd go to the office, which was in the center in Milan in this beautiful building, and I got to play with all the technology there and uh, bounce on chairs, essentially. And then, <laughs> and then on Sunday mornings we'd go to the Museum of Science and Technology in Milan and um, just spend a few hours there pushing buttons, literally, because they had these um, interactive displays. It's it's a gorgeous museum where they have um, a ton of different sections, and they had these buttons that actually worked, and you could push them and see things come to life, from machines to old musical instruments. They had this whole section dedicated to Leonardo da Vinci, where you could actually try simulations of their machines. And of course, if I think about it, um, if uh, in light of what is possible with technology these days, it was all very rudimental, but there was something about seeing, experiencing how it worked, how things worked in a physical environment that had a profound appeal on me. Well, do you, do you find yourself you know, referencing these experiences as all as when you're working on things now? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Cause, all the time. Uh, yeah. I mean, it seems like, uh, it's an amazing perspective to have and, and not, not that, uh, I mean, there are lots of designers working who, who, uh, had the chance to work with computers when they were still kind of emergent technology, but some, there's so many other people working who have really no, pers- don't have that perspective or if they do, it's, it's like they think it's kitschy or something, but to have really been there and been able to, to not only realize that stuff was there, but actually get to tinker with it and experiment with it. I mean, how unique. What a great, great experience to have. It, it, was, very, it, it, it was very cool. And, um, you know, if I think about um, the designers I work with, there's, you know, I work with a range of people from uh, people in their 20s to people in their 50s. So people that come from the most diverse backgrounds, because at the time there wasn't a course in UX. UX, you know, per se, didn't even exist. And people who specifically went to school uh, for that, you see that people that have different experiences that come at experience design from different backgrounds all tend to bring very different points of view and very different techniques. And a lot of those techniques uh, have very real references to the physical world or to the early, early digital world, which paradoxically is um, of incredible value these days where I feel we should move beyond digital because of the possibilities of the technology to really go into uh, cross-channel or multi-channel. So, so this ability to 
understand the multi-dimensionality, if you will, of the experiences that we design becomes incredibly important. Uh, you know, I had a conversation recently with, with uh, someone who had a chance to, he's developing apps now for the iWatch. And one of the things we talked about is how, uh, how even though, I mean, one of the criticisms obviously is that it's this small little screen. Um, and while that might seem like a liability, it's, it's also in a way a bit of a stepping stone um, because it has other ways of interacting with you and has the taptic engine and things that, that it might kind of mark uh, the departure from uh, digital experiences being screen-based or, or uh, computer-based necessarily and how you know, the, the technologies might actually start moving into the, more into the background so that these digital, experience are just, in, these digital experiences are just kind of integrated with our daily existence. We're not actually having to use devices as much. Uh, which it is it, uh, there is something about that um, and I, I feel very very ambivalent um, about the loss of um, uh, you know the, the focus on digital the focus on um, you know purely a screen interface uh, at the same time I feel equally as ambivalent about distributed experiences or uh, experiential applications of, you know, technology. Um, because there is, you know, as humans, we were talking about these social networks that came as meteors, last for a week, everybody was talking about them, and then they go. Uh, we tend to get really, really excited about the possibilities. And we lose, I feel like, oftentimes we, lo we lose a little bit of the human dimension. We tend to forget that um, behind all these things that we can do, all these uh, screens or physical interfaces or uh, whatever the next implants or whatever the next thing is going to be, there are still physical people, very real human beings that have needs that go beyond the ones that a designer or a team of designers can, uh, can come up with. And so, um, on one hand, it's cool. We can do so many things, but doing all those things just because we can do them, I'm not sure if I'm entirely 100% comfortable with. Um, you know, I was, I was thinking about how uh, memory, for instance, is affected by, um, by technology. Uh, I'm a kinesthetic learner. That means that um, if someone talks to me, I have to focus really, really hard to follow. So when, you know, when I was in school, when I was in class, I would take notes because the act of writing remind, you know, helped me remember and absorb concepts. Uh, I hate videos because video is very linear as a way of, um, you know, acquiring information. You can't really go back or bookmark. I mean, I suppose you can rewind but it's not like a book um, and so if I think about um, when, when I was a teenager um, I knew most of my friends phone number by heart because the act of dialing them writing them down and at the end of the year having to transcribe them into a new book because at the time phone books came with your um, calendar you know your pocket your purse calendar whatever or agenda um, that 
stimulated my memory. And in the same, uh, you know, much in the same fashion, I would navigate physical spaces by creating physical landmark or marking physical landmarks in my head. You know, I would look at a map, but then I would know that to go to school, I would have to pass this store and the other store and that the bus stop was there or the, the tube was somewhere else. Right now, we outsource so much of the, um, or so many of those tasks to technology that I honestly don't know my husband's phone number here in England. I have no idea. If I don't have my phone or my computer, because I don't have to dial it, I don't remember it. And so the reason, I know I'm, I mean, I suppose I'm trying really hard to learn it. You know, it's been only a year since we've been here, but, <laughs> but, and, and I find myself trying to teach, to teach my kids um, mnemonic tricks sure. to memorize things. Uh, so when we were in LA and we spent a lot of time in the car and they, uh, and I, you know, thought that it was time for them to learn my phone number by heart. I made up songs to teach them my phone number. Um, but so, of course, now they have iPods and they still don't have phones, but they have digital devices. My phone number and my email is there. But there is this very uh, real risk that um, we lose a little bit of mental elasticity because we delegate so much. And once you start losing the relationship with the physical world, with you start uh, sort of uh, not using as much your mental faculties, um, I think that's something we should think about. Because it's not like we use that. It's not like a computer. The RAM that we don't use, the memory allocation that we don't use for this kind of information doesn't get repurposed for something else. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's frightening too, yeah. How how quickly we've all kind of surrendered so many, uh, not just our privacy, but uh, yeah, our interactions with other people to convenience and, and to uh, you know added functionality and that kind of thing. Yeah, and there, and there's the issue of attention if you think about it. I mean, my kids are preteen; they're one is almost a tween, and I see her interactions with her friends, even when they're together. They have screens. So the whole experience of being together with a friend is mediated by whatever is going on in the world. And, and that's slightly terrifying. So I occasionally do the bad mom thing and take electronics away, which prompts screens and yeah. cries. And, I don't know if that's the bad mom thing, just the unpopular mom thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I specialize yeah. in that. <laughs> Well, it's funny to think too that we're, you know, we're able to have this discussion about uh, the merits of of giving up your privacy for for certain conveniences. But uh, you know, our our kids, I wonder if the, if they'll even think about that, if it'll even be a concern, because it's just will be so normalized by the time they're adults. Like, will they really think about it, or will it just be such an ingrained fact of life that they don't think about it? And and how did this all happen so fast? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I that, and that that is a very real concern and one that I share in very much. I don't think that uh, that kids these days have, but not just kids, even millennials uh, have a clear understanding of what boundaries are and what real privacy is. Um, 
there is, especially for, for the youngest, I think there is this idea that if, um, if it's between their online friends, it's safe because it's between friends and the definition of friends has changed dramatically. It's literally everybody you're connected with yeah. online. And on the other hand, the real is, you know, the lack of understanding that the channels they use, it doesn't matter if it's Kick or Instagram or Twitter, etc., are the internet. So there is this sort of disconnect between the platform that they choose to use and the, the you know, the, the channel, the, the, the wider, uh, you know, the wider medium that they're using that's, um, that's worrying. Well, yeah, I feel like we could, we could wax philosophical probably for another hour and a half, but uh, maybe we could just talk a little bit about the giant conference and, and you know, what you're going to be talking about and what you're excited, what you're looking forward to there. Uh, uh, well, the first thing that I'm excited about is um, to go to Giant. Uh, last year, uh, I missed it, and I was gutted to miss it because, um, you know, it, I know the organizers, they're amazing guys that do f phenomenal work, and I witnessed part of the birth of the conference, you know, through conversations, um, and, and I know the, the care and the passion that went into it, and I had to bail out because of, um, you know, some, some personal things that were happening at the last minute, so I'm really, really excited to be there for them and uh, and with them and uh, also to go to Charleston where I've never been um, and uh, you know I was looking at this, the lineup of sessions is uh, someone last year called it the UX Live Aid it really is I mean the, the lineup is phenomenal there are so many fine thinkers and there are so also so many people that I don't know that it's really exciting you know we have this whole concept of uh, rock stars in UX um, and uh, I uh, I have no problem with people being really well known and uh, you know being household names as long as that label is, if you will, or that title is handled with care. I've seen some really big names being really amazing to newcomers um, and uh, others being a little less nice. Uh, from what I've heard and from, you know, the people I know that are going to Giant, um, it's a very, very welcoming uh, environment, uh, which is the community needs as a whole. So, you know, that's, that's really, really exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, it's helped by the fact that um, uh, Ant and Christian and Joel have put together this amazing um, series of events around the conference that, you know, the, there's parties, there's moments for socialization, there's moments for conversation, and, uh, and I'm really looking forward to being there for that. As for my talk... <laughs> It's um, I'm excited to give it. I've never given it in the States. I've only given it here in Europe a couple of times. And it has a sort of a bizarre uh, genesis, if you will. Um, I was invited to last year uh, on a very short notice to a um, first-time event, smaller event in Kent, which is uh, south um, southwest of England, uh, by... 
someone who knew someone I knew as a replacement because the someone I knew had to go to China all of a sudden. And so I said, well, they told me you have 10 minutes, um, talk about whatever you want. I said, well, what do you want me to talk about? Um, I said, well, you know, the person you're replacing would have done something crazy, do something crazy as well. And so that's kind of how it came about. And But if you think about it, it really, the topic is death and uh, our digital legacy, which, you know, ties... Uh, more than loosely into what we were talking about. Um, it talks about, uh, you know, real experiences, the state of things, uh, what happens to our digital personas after we die, and what um, the different social media channels, services allow us to do in terms of making a, a decision as to... Um, our, as to our digital estate. But it also talks about privacy. It talks about, um, you know, rights on a very, on a very human level to uh, determine what our legacy, our heritage is going to be. Um, what, one of the things that uh, I've noticed more and more, uh, and I know that there are countless articles on the topic, is that uh, when someone passes, um, social media um, continue to surface their information and present it to you at the most random moments. So, um, you know, Facebook is infamous for this. Oh, today is so-and-so's birthday, and, so, and, and you know that so-and-so died two years ago or ten years ago. Um, actually, ten years ago, Facebook didn't exist, but 2007, when they started. Um, I had one such case today on LinkedIn where a former colleague of mine from UCLA popped up on my someone you might know on LinkedIn and it kind of broke my heart a little bit. And the thing is uh, that, uh, the, the, you know, there are different schools of thought. Um, there are people that when, uh, you know, have they have a very clear idea of how they want to be remembered when they pass. They want a cemetery with a stone or an urn with their ashes. Uh, they want to people to go and visit. They want maybe to have their uh, letters preserved and sent to a museum. I worked on a project for this um, recently for um, a person in California who is extremely wealthy, doesn't have any family, has a mental illness, and he's, um, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to work, uh, but um, spends all of his time taking college classes. And he writes papers. I mean, he could have probably gotten 15 PhDs at this point. He has hundreds of thousands of pages of materials. And for him, it's very important because he will not have children because he's one um, one of the last ones in his family that his heritage is preserved. And so we created a some sort of library and archive of the things that he wrote. All of his papers are scanned, digitized, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, some people find comfort in setting up memorials. I mean, memorial sites are all over the internet. Some people 
really relish having a place on Facebook to go and remember people. Um, personally, when I die, I'm dead. I don't believe that my digital representation uh, is going to have a whole lot of meaning. And granted, I'm making a decision and I'm working on the basis of a huge assumption, uh, but I don't want people to remember me by that photo I posted on Twitter or that, you know, that one time that Alan Cooper retweeted me. <laughs> it's a I big deal. People... <laughs> I know, I know, it's my claim to fame. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if I were to die tomorrow or tonight, I would hope that you and Liz would remember me by this conversation, you know, this interaction that we've had, that the things that you remember about me are not in a screenshot or in something that I wrote, but by this exchange we've had, you know, this experience, however mediated by technology it is. And so for those people, so this talk is centered around having a choice. And as designers, I think we have a responsibility to give people that choice. So we talk a lot about designing for onboarding you know, how people begin using our, our services. But I think it's high time that we think about designing for offboarding. I would agree. So if you think about, if you think about it, um, if you look at your, you know, your very private email, which is a secret between yourself and Google. Um, Benevolent Google. <laughs> there are things... <laughs> but there are things in there that you may be completely happy to share with your partner, but there may be very personal conversations because, you know, we've had these accounts for a long time. There are things that maybe are private, conversations that are private between you and your best friend or, you know, between you and a, and a relative that, if read, would create damage, but could be taken out of context or things that just you don't feel like sharing. And we should design for that flexibility in allowing people to decide what happens when we're not here anymore. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, it's just, it's a, like we've been talking about, it's an enormous amount, amount of personal data that uh, right now you're not really given much control over or much, or, or at least you're not presented with features and options and settings for, you know, what you want to happen to this stuff when you're gone. Yeah. Well, paradoxically, Google um, has a really interesting feature called, bizarrely, the inactive account manager. And uh, it isn't a death tracker, <laughs> for clarity, but um, it's essentially a setting that allows you to decide what happens to your... Google Estates, if you will, uh, if you don't log on, um, if you don't log on to any of their services for a set period of time. So you decide what period of time uh, that is, and you can tell Google after if I don't log on to anything for three, six, twelve months, here's what I want you to do with my things. And, and Google has done this very cleverly in that uh, 
you can you know they offer you a level a level of granularity that's interesting you can decide for each service what you want to happen so you can decide that your email may be deleted you know except you read the fine print and it's never really deleted from google servers but you know your email account for all intents and purposes doesn't exist anymore but you really want your picasa photos to be um to be to become the property of your brother and you can decide that your google plus account becomes property of someone else or everything gets deleted which is really interesting uh they're one of the few that use this you know that give you this kind of control over what you have and then of course because i have a twisted mind um i started thinking well what if I went to, you know, I set my threshold at six months and I went into a coma for seven months. And my entire legacy, you know, my entire thing goes away before I'm ready to let it go. But, you know, these, these are edge cases. I think Google really offers you a level of flexibility that's kind of unparalleled in the industry. It is. Uh, well, it's interesting, too, because we, like we've been talking about, we're kind of... Uh, we're, you know, we, we grew up with this, watching this technology grow, all this stuff, all this data, everything accumulate. Um, so maybe it's a little foreign, too, to, to think of digital assets as property in a sense. Um, and, you know, uh, our kids might have a completely different view of that stuff, but, but it really is. It's property. Um, at least for me, it's, I don't immediately think of it as like, how do I want to divide up my, you know, my Twitter assets or anything like that? But 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 in a sense, you know, I guess you're gone and they can't market things to you anymore. But th- that data still exists and still has meaning and still is available to create connections. And there's still stories buried in there. So, yeah. And then there's so much of it. You know, it's, it's like a complete separate representation of yourself that exists that you probably would like to have a little bit of control over. Right. And, and uh, I mean, think about, did, did you ever have a MySpace account? I never, I don't think I did. Oh, that, that's distressing, man, <laughs> if I can't remember. But. <laughs> no, but, you know, things like MySpace, you know, maybe when they launched the service, you signed up because, you know, you're a journalist and you, you know, you wanted to check it out. Uh, we, we leave all this, and then you never log back in. We leave all these traces, you know, this little breadcrumb. And that we forget about, that we don't know anything about, and that one day someone might find, um, you know, imagine if you were, and I'm not saying you, you, but you were someone who discovers something really important that changes people's lives, but in in the past you had uh, you know a wild um, a wild phase that's documented in some obscure network that uh, is uh, you know you forgot about, and then your discovery uh, becomes so important that it gets implemented and developed etc cetera, etc cetera, and you die and someone goes back and fishes that wild phase of your life out of you know MySpace or AOL or whatever it was. And something that's potentially humanity and life-changing gets completely invalidated because of some weird thing that was out there that you didn't even remember about. You know, it's, it's, 
I mean, again, this is an edge case, but um, we do a lot of things and we've done a lot of things without even knowing at that point what we were getting ourselves into. And um, we should have the possibility to undo those things if we choose to do that. I agree. Yeah, there's, there's not a lot of foresight often. I think we do get caught up in the excitement and the convenience and kind of lose sight of, of where the road might lead. But have, you, uh, have you watched the BBC series Black Mirror at all? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, it reminded me of the one where the, yeah, the couple, uh, the husband dies and then she logs on, reluctantly kind of logs onto a service that recreates him based on, you know, all his social media activity yeah. that he was, yeah. Yeah, really pretty brilliant show. <laughs> it's a brilliant show, and you're actually not the first one, um, not the first one to mention this to me in the context of this talk. But if you think about it, if someone were to recreate you from your social media activities, would it be you? I don't think so, and I'm, I'm not like the most uh, active social media uh, user, so it would probably be some very strange, stilted version of me that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Exactly. And if you think, you know, I like to say that Facebook is the saddest place on earth, <laughs> which I... <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to argue with you there. I... Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit ashamed of having actually an active Facebook account. But uh, again, it was one of the things that I started using because uh, when it was geared to universities, because I was working at a university, and then uh, it was... Because so many of the people I knew in real life in Italy were on it. It was kind of an easy way to keep in touch with people. But on Facebook, we tend to portray a version of ourselves that's um, completely made up, you know. Um, apparently, we all vacation in these amazing places with palms and we all take the same photo of toes we eat and great we, food all the time yeah <laughs> yes yeah we were you know we have these wonderful insights as uh, parents or professionals we you know but that's not who we are that's not really who our person is we post those things primarily to keep up with the picket fence of the next Facebook account. That's absolutely uh, so true. Recreating or, or determining that that's how we're going to be remembered after we're no longer here, I find it a bit reductive. And for those who are fine with the idea, I have no problem with that. Sure. I know that for myself, I kind of don't want that. I personally, and I, I don't want to give away too much about, you know, when it comes to the talk, but I don't need to be remembered by artifacts, physical or digital. You know, I, I would love to be remembered because of the things that I've done and because of who I am and the people I've met. Yeah, that's, I think that's and all right anyone would can. really ask for, right, is you want your legacy to be carried on through the, the people that you affect, um, and especially with kids, you know, you, like they will carry pieces of you on in a hopefully a more meaningful way than how funny we were all trying to be on Twitter. So, <laughs> Yes, yes, definitely. Well, great. Uh, sounds like it's going to be a wonderful talk. Uh, and sounds like the conference is going to be a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thank, no, thank you so much. Whoa, sorry about that abrupt cut. Why did I cut? Uh, well, Alberta asked me if I was going to go to the giant conference, and uh, I'm not going to be able to. 
It's not that I don't want to, I just, I'm not going to be able to make the trip. Although now that I've told you that, I suppose I could have just let the tape run. Lesson learned. But hey, if, you, uh, if you're into rad work, people who do rad work, you should go to the Giant Conference. Check it out. Google Giant Conference. It's like the first thing that comes up. And let's, uh, let's do this again soon.